Welcome to the program. For music to be successful, there must be that special bond between performer and listener. Perhaps nowhere has that bond been stronger than in the unique 40-year relationship between Bob Dylan and music critic extraordinaire Grail Marcus. Their relationship between singer and listener could be said to define American music over the last 40 years. Grail Marcus is the author of the previous books, When That Rough God Goes Riding, Like a Rolling Stone, The Old Weird America, The Shape of Things to Come, Mystery Train, and so many more works. He has taught at Princeton, Berkeley, the University of Minnesota, and the New School in New York. It is my pleasure to have Grail Marcus back on this program to talk about his newest work, Bob Dylan, Writings 1968 to 2010. Grail, thanks so much for joining us again. Uh, it's good to be with you. Good to have you here. You begin the book by talking about your first encounter with Dylan. Tell us a little about that. Uh, it was 1963. I was 18. I'm from California, but I was spending the summer in Philadelphia. And I went to see Joan Baez, who was pretty much from my hometown in Menlo Park, someone I saw around a lot uh, and who I'd seen perform before. I went to see her at some kind of um, music festival in uh, New Jersey. I guess it was in near Camden. And it was one of those old theaters in the round. And what that meant was that um, you know everybody sat around this round stage, which would actually rotate every hmm. 15 or 20 minutes. And so there was no front, there was no back. Everyone had the equal, equal good access. There was no backstage. It was all, you know, kind of like a medieval festival. That that was the idea. And so Joan Baez is performing, and then after a time she says, I want to introduce a friend of mine, and she brings out this guy whose name I didn't catch. I'm sure she said who was. And he was hunched over and looked dusty, and he seemed very um, shy and he started to sing a song, and it was with um, with God on our side. And I was just riveted. I was sucked in immediately. I wasn't even watching this person. He, he was rewriting the book of American history, the kind of fifth-grade American history textbook that everybody would be taught in public schools or maybe in high school about all of our wars and, and how they were all blessed by God. And because we were a democracy... Um, we could really never fail, and, and uh, our moral position was always unquestionable. And without, you know, uh, engaging in any kind of heavy-handedness or propaganda, he just turned the story so that it looked different. He cast it into doubt in 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 a way that just seemed extraordinarily subtle, and it was one of those experiences, and I've had them uh, a few other times, where I heard a song once, and I instantly memorized the whole thing. Um, the words, the cadence, the melody, the attitude, it was all present, and I was just stunned. And he sang a couple of songs with Joan Baez, and then he left, and she finished her show, and I was barely paying attention. I, I just didn't know who this person was, and after the show was over, I went. I saw him crouching in the dirt, trying to light a cigarette. It was kind of windy. He was having a lot of trouble getting the match lit. And I went up to him, and I was just very dumbfounded. I said, "You were you were terrific." And he 
said, no, no, no. <laughs> he, he, he didn't want to hear it, didn't even look up. And I thought, hmm, well, I didn't know what to say to that. So I walked off. I asked somebody who this guy was who was singing with Joan Baez, and he told me. First thing I did when I got back to California was go to a record store and ask for an album by him. Took the free wheel and Bob Dylan home, played it until the grooves were gray. And when you started listening to that, talk about how listening to that album kind of tied into that first experience and what you began to see, what you began to understand about this guy. Well, one thing I began to understand, I suppose, was that um, you could never be sure who you were really dealing with, who this person was, what exactly he was doing, what he was talking about. And one of the reasons for that was that the Free Will and Bob Dylan was actually released in two different versions. There's the version that most everybody knows. And then there was a version with four different songs um, than on the official version that was accidentally released in California. I think there were probably a few hundred copies accidentally um, put out and then immediately recalled. And I happened to buy one of those. And so I took the thing home. I read the liner notes. They didn't match the songs that I was hearing. I took the thing back to the record store. I said, there's something wrong with this album. He said, oh, yeah, they're all like that. Come back in a couple weeks. I'll have some good copies. But by that time, uh, you know, I had fallen in love with the thing. I didn't really care um, that there was something wrong with it. I assumed that was the way they all were. And... You know, here were these songs that didn't fit, that didn't fit the descriptions. And I thought, well, you know, who is this guy? He's, he's playing tricks on his own albums. This is so fascinating. And it just opened up this, this notion that you could never be sure um, that anything had the right title, had the right name. Uh, and it, it sort of gave me freedom as a listener to... Um, rethink everything, you know, and and I wasn't writing yet, but that's always been my approach as a writer, to try and start with a song, start with a line, start with a melody or the way somebody raises uh, a voice, and say, what's what's this about? What's, What's going on here? Rather than simply saying, well, this is what they say in the liner notes, uh, it is, so I guess that's that. How much did it relate for you and and others to the times that you were listening to this, to that period in the mid to late 60s and then in the early 70s? To what extent did it reflect what was going on? And as you say, some of it was even surprising in that context. Well, you know, on that album, on on the Free Will and Bob Dylan, there are so many songs that are absolutely hilarious. Uh, they're just wonderful goofs. They don't take anything seriously. Uh, and yet they still draw a picture of the country. And the, and the picture they draw is, is kind of of a world upside down where anything can happen, where nothing necessarily makes sense, um, where nothing holds still. And it's, and it's both disturbing and, and thrilling and, and, and funny at the, at the same time. That was in 1963. In 1964, the year after the Great March on Washington that was led by Martin Luther King, um, the the year of 
Freedom Summer in Mississippi when three civil rights workers and other people, too, were murdered by the Ku Klux Klan, um, where the country really is experiencing extraordinary upheaval, and, of course, it's in the aftermath of the assassination of uh, President Kennedy, um, where, where it looks as if the country might be cracking. It might be forced to live up to it its promises, and it might fall apart in the process. Nobody knew what was going on. It, there, there was tremendous energies of hope and change and, and equal energies of, of, of fear and, uh, and fright. And so in that year, Bob Dylan releases The Times They Are a Change, which is a whole album of social songs let's say, social realist songs, protest songs, whatever you want to call them. And that album really did reflect what was going on. It was just a mirror. But it also didn't add anything. It didn't engage. It didn't say, this is my version. You know, the whole album Mm -hmm. struck me as if it could have been written by a committee. Um, And that's not what Bob Dylan has been about. That album is a, is a, is a great anomaly in his whole career. It's, you know, it's completely humorless, for one thing. I can't think of another Bob Dylan record that is. Um, when he moved on to Highway 61, revisited in 1965, or for that matter, Time Out of Mind, um, 30-some years later, those are albums that draw a picture of the country, draw a picture of the times, the society, that's skewed, that's through a glass darkly, that is not simply a mirror, where you get uh, a thinking, passionate individual who's telling you how the world looks to him as opposed to telling you what everybody already knows which I think is pretty much what the times they are a change in was. Right. So um, his talent, his, his, you know, what, what makes Bob Dylan so unpredictable is that he will always give you a picture you haven't seen before and didn't expect. And what did you come to understand about his vision, about the way he would, would peer into the reality of what was going on and then reflect that back, as you say, not as a mirror, but through his own unique vision? Well, you know, I don't think Bob Dylan, except maybe with the times there, are changing, ever sat down and said, it's my job now to, you know, give a State of the Union report. Um, or anything like that. I think, you know, when you write a song, you have an idea, you have a notion, maybe you have an image, maybe you have a phrase that you want to build on, maybe you have a a melody that is really the engine of the song and you just need some words to, to dress up that melody. And so you engage in the process. And in that process, um, the process itself will draw from you ideas, wordplay, and word you know, the way two words bump up against each other can give rise to an idea that will shape the song. Um, and I think I got a sense maybe early on that, that this was how these things were happening, that it was, it was foolish to look at these songs as so many people were doing in the mid-60s as if they were like 
coded messages, and if you could decipher them, you'd get the truth. Um, that everything had, you know, it was like a like a little decoder ring, and it would <laughs> tell you what the what the secret password was. Um, that that isn't how these songs came to be, and that wasn't what was at their heart. You know, you could take a song like "Absolutely Sweet Marie" from Blonde on Blonde. Just wonderful rock and roll song. And what is that song about? It's about speed. It's about how fast can we run this race. That's what. It's Which really argues for really understanding, as as you have understanding the totality of the work and all of these many pieces along the way. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, I think as as time has gone on, and I've now been writing about Bob Dylan for more than 40 years, certain touchstones make themselves known to me. Touchstones for me, not necessarily for anybody else. Um, A song that he recorded in the Gaslight Cafe in Greenwich Village in the fall of 1962 that's on the Gaslight live album that came out a few years ago, something that circulated for years on a on a bootleg tape. Somebody was there that night with a tape recorder. And he sang a lot of old folk songs, songs that everybody else in Greenwich Village uh, was singing. But he sang them with a different kind of empathy, with a different kind of inhabiting. He became the people he was singing about. He became all the characters in each of the songs. And one of those songs was No More Auction Block, or also called Many Thousands Gone. It was a song um, of, about, and by freed slaves. No more auction block. No more, no more. No more auction block for me. No more. Um, and, you know, it, it, it is not ordinary. It's not, it doesn't make ordinary sense for a young kid to stand up and s- pretend he's a slave and make you believe it. Um, that's become a touchstone. That That is something I return to again and again and again as a song that itself illuminates or finds wanting anything else that he might be doing at any given time, either before that or, or after. And, you know, this, this book, uh, 1968, 2010, the story has a long way to go. Um, there's nothing definitive about this book, um, but you know I didn't really think it made sense to wait until it was 700 pages long <laughs> instead of 500 pages long. Talk a little bit about uh, some of the things that that you liked less in his work, and of course your famous review of uh, the Self Portrait album. That was an album that came out in 1970, and it was an album mostly of covers of songs by other people recorded here, there, and everywhere, some in Nashville, some live recordings, some in New York. Uh, almost everything on that album, with you know, very few exceptions, like Copper Kettle, just seemed to be done in a, in a who-cares spirit. And I wrote a very, very long piece for Rolling Stone about that album, and, um, you know, maybe too long, but I sort of couldn't stop. It was like, this is the worst thing 
I had ever heard from Bob Dylan or anybody had, and it, and people were talking about it like mad that this very long piece was simply meant to capture the conversation that people were having, and you can look back at it now and maybe re-inhabit a time when the release of a Bob Dylan album did spark, uh, you know, this, this tremendous contentious conversation all over the country, if not the world. Um, and and it was it was so bad. And I thought, you know, maybe he just wants the world off his back. Maybe he's tired of being treated as the conscience of his generation, the voice of his generation, the prophet of our times. And so he's putting out something so terrible that no one will ever be able to take <laughs> him seriously again, which is pretty much what he said he was doing when he wrote his own book, Chronicles, that came out, I think, uh, six years ago. He said, he said, we just recorded everything, we threw it all up against the wall, and whatever stuck we released, and later we released the rest of it too. Um, and that's sure what it sounded like, but it opened a period when I think he lost his subject. He no longer had anything he deeply needed or wanted to sing about. He no longer had anything he needed to say or wanted to say, maybe. In any case, you can look at that time from 1970 on up until more than, you know, maybe 20 years and you find a flailing around, somebody swimming through quicksand, um, somebody raising his head up above um, the water level for a moment and shouting, and everyone is so thrilled to hear that voice again. They say, God, it's as good as ever. It's better than ever. It's so terrific. And, in fact, it was, it was one dead battery after another, album after album, tour after tour, and it wasn't until the early 90s when he turned back to music that he was singing before he'd even recorded his first album, very old blues, very old folk songs, and now looked at them with, with different eyes than he had ever been able to look at them when he was 18, 19, 20, 21. And these songs now were not something to sing. They were books. They were the Talmud. They were the Bible. Uh, they had infinite uh, complexities. Uh, they 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 contained all the knowledge you'd ever need. I'm not saying that's true. That's how he played them, as if it was true, on these two unproduced folky albums that he put out in the early '90s. He he, he approached these songs as if they deserved everything he could give them, and that if he gave them everything, they would give back to him tenfold. Uh, there was just that sense of value, of jeopardy, of, of uh, tension in those records. And that began his second career that he's still in the middle of. When he began that second career, was there the same humor that you were talking about that was part of his early work? Yeah, I, I, I mean... It comes out in different ways. I, it's it's not as cheeky. It's not as um, immediately funny. It's not you, you know Bob Dylan in the early '60s or the mid '60s 
on stage was just hilarious. You know, he he just he he would tell these hilarious stories. He would he would mock his own songs uh, himself, even his audience. Um, you know, he was he was right there with you in a way that he isn't on stage now, but. When you listen to something like Sugar Baby, the last song on Love and Theft, an album from uh, 2000, 2001, uh, that can be very, very funny. Uh, and it can also be absolutely heartbreaking. It depends on how you hear it. Um, the humor is more distant now. It's more, it's more a matter of a raised eyebrow than... Um, I've just heard this incredible joke, and I can't wait to tell you. Is it more ironic? I don't know. I don't trust that word. I don't trust huh. that concept, really. Um, it's more distant. And you end the, this collection talking about uh, his performance at the University of Minnesota on election night, 2008. Talk about that. Well, in, in some ways, it was a bookend to the first time I'd ever seen him so many years before. Uh, I was teaching at the University of Minnesota in the fall of 2008, and Bob Dylan was going to be playing there on election night. He had never played there before on the campus uh, where he'd gone to school. He was coming back. Uh, it just seemed so laden with either coincidence or um, or weight. You know, Bob Dylan returns to his what would have been his alma mater on election night 2008. What is this going to be? What's he going to play? What is it going to feel like? So it was the biggest hall on campus, and it seemed to be a tremendously serious show with every song treated as if it might break um, if, it, if it wasn't done as well as it could be. Songs like The Times They Are a Changing or Blowing in the Wind, two of my least favorite Bob Dylan songs, were stripped of all their sanctimoniousness, of all their moral righteousness and, and certainty, and made you know, full of doubt. Just like when I had first seen him in 1963, he, he took the country's story and infused it with doubt. Well, now he took his own old manifestos, and he put doubt inside of them. And so here we were on a night when, you know, most of the people you could be pretty certain in that hall had voted for Barack Obama, had voted for what they thought would be, uh, you know, a different face. When we look at the face of the country, we see somebody that we've never seen before. Uh, Barack Obama is going to be our mirror, too. You know, when, when you and I look in the mirror of our country, we see his face along with our own. That was going to be quite shocking and momentous, and that's what people, most of the people there um, had done. And people had voted, people had gone out to vote, and then they showed up at this, at this concert and waited to find out what would happen. And at the very, very end of the show, he said, I was born in 1941, the year they dropped the bomb. I've been living in darkness ever since, but I think things are going to change now. And then he sang um, his last song, and then the show ended, and it was two or three minutes to ten, two or three minutes before the polls were 
would be closing in California, and then networks could announce the winner of the election. The whole crowd, several thousand people, filled the enormous lobby of the biggest auditorium on campus, and there was a huge TV set way up high uh, on the wall turned to CNN. And just as the lobby was full, you know, the clock struck 10, they announced that Barack Obama had been elected president, um, and, the, and the show had been timed for that moment. It wasn't going to end 15 minutes before that. It wasn't going to end five minutes or even one minute later. Um, and I thought, you know, how wonderful, how wonderful to make your own music, your own speech, your own statement, part of this enormous shared event so that it becomes both big and small at the same time. The book is Bob Dylan by Grail Marcus, writings 1968 to 2010. It is out from Public Affairs Press. Grail, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Oh, it's a delight. I appreciate the chance. Thank you. When the rain is blowing in your face And the whole is on your case I could offer you a warm embrace To make you feel my love When evening shadows and the stars appear